Hello, everyone. It's raining like hell here in uh, Washington, D.C. Welcome. This is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. My name is Luke Thomas, Senior Editor over at MMA Fighting and uh, host of this lovely uh, program. Thank you so much for being here. I want to say that off the top. Glad to do this chat today. A lot of interesting topics to get to, and that should be fun. Um, we'll talk about UFC on Fox 18's results. We'll get to this Saturday's UFC Fight Night, I think, 82. was UFC 196, now UFC Fight Night 82. Um, all the different issues there. California with the weight cutting, Benson Henderson to Bellator, and everything in between. So it should be a good time. Again, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, best place to get your questions in is going to be on the MMA Fighting dot com page where this video is embedded um questions that turn green get priority without exclusivity please give it a thumbs up share this around like comment do the whole night i really appreciate it uh, it'd be great and by the way we're on itunes itunes.com slash promotional malpractice so as you guys know with that uh homework out of the way and uh how whatever you want to call it i'm still rocking these i had a lot of people show me pictures of like these in your local grocery stores what can I say? You are a lucky person to live in that town. But I can tell you in my grocery stores, they don't carry this. Ah, oh, man. Tastes good-ish, sort of, in a way. All right. Let us get to this chat, shall we? All right. Oh, we're on SoundCloud, too. I try to post those um, on Twitter. Uh, at SBN Luke Thomas, and then the hashtag chat rappers, um, if you're a SoundCloud person as well. All right, so first question, true, false. Uh, let's start it off this way. Johnny Hendricks will get a title shot in 2016. I will say false. Steven Thompson wins on Saturday, making the answer to the question above false. Maybe. Mickey Gall, Mike Jackson has the potential to be the worst fight in the history of the UFC. Well, Considering the older age of UFC, probably not, right? Some of the early era events, I don't think that's true. I mean, even classic bouts like Randleman versus Rutan sucked, right? I mean, Randleman was on top for an interminable amount of time. Rutan wins only because he's like slightly more jujitsu-y than Randleman, and uh, it was a terrible bout, so probably not. But in the modern era, yes, this will be probably not great. Uh, letting Benson Henderson go is more embarrassing than letting CM Punk make his MMA debut in the UFC. False. Benson Henderson is the biggest free agent loss in the UFC has had since the fall of Pride. Um, he's up there. Certainly uh, Bellator's biggest acquisition. I mean, you know, they lost Dan Henderson after UFC 100, so I'm not sure how true that is. Uh, let's see. Um, when you heard Abdel Abdul Karim Edelov had failed a USADA test, your first response was who? That is true. The crackdown on PEDs will lead to shortened peaks and careers. Maybe. The California Athletic Commission's ban on dehydration will have little to no real effect on the sport. I won't say no effect, but certainly little. So I guess true-ish. Sage Northcutt learns to grapple at a high level at TriStar. True. Josh Barnett fought his last fight on Saturday. False. Anthony Johnson would spend 99% of a fight against John Jones on his back. It's a good question, you know. Probably, I would say false. Maybe not 99%, but a big portion of it. John Jones, the one thing, the one knock you can make on him is that his own arrogance has led him to fight in ways that he feels will 
benefit him in some other capacity other than the directest route to winning, sending a message, having a fight look a certain way because he can get away with that sort of thing. But that might cost him against someone like Anthony Johnson who can spark you out on a dime. Uh, Let's see. All right, so let's just get into this now. Seeing the backlash against Northcutt's fast tap, I thought it was particularly, excuse me, I thought it was partially due to the insane toughness we saw from Paige Van Zandt in December. Would you agree with that assessment? Do you think the comparison of the two is fair? Yeah. I mean, I think you could both say in the case of Van Zandt and uh, Northcutt, there was a certain technical sophistication um, that both were lacking. Yeah, I thought that Paige Van Zandt showed uh, tremendous grit, the kind in this particular case that Northcutt did not. However, I, I, can't, I, I said it on the Monday Morning Analyst, and I'll say it again here. There's a lot to criticize Sage Northcutt for. There's very little you can say about his future. There might come a time in a future bout where he gets just absolutely bulldozed and beaten up and doesn't quit and shows tremendous capacity to to um, to endure. Now, or he may go on and win all his fights. But what I'm pointing out to you is, again, if you're looking at this fight and you're saying this is who he is, either from a technical perspective or from a toughness perspective, I think you're being really, really unfair. It just isn't true that the guy you saw on Saturday – that's as, that's as good as he can be as a fighter. That's as tough as he can be as a fighter. You can learn to be tougher, especially when you're 19 and you're really in the hands of great caretakers. You just have a lot of time to find out about yourself and how to put yourself in your, in your furthest limits and what, how to expand your furthest limits. There's a lot of self-discovery, and some people have that a little more naturally than others. That's true, too. Some people are more athletic than others. Some people are, are stronger than others. Some people are smarter than others. You, you are born with some kind of traits that enable you to do certain tasks a little more easy than maybe um, a little easier, I should say, than some of your contemporaries or peers. But it's also true that some of these things are within your grasp. And again, um, we'll talk about it in just a second here. But, you know, look, the fact that he was probably sick didn't help. I, I, I don't think that's all that crazy an idea necessarily to float. Now, let's get a couple of things out here that we can just because we can get it over with and move on. Um, and a lot of people yesterday sent me the Gracie breakdown video of uh, whether whether the North Cut tap was too quick. If you watched my Monday Morning Analyst, I didn't weigh in on that question at all. In fact, if you go to the 3405 mark of my video, there's a rule in jiu-jitsu, which is that if a choke is tight or an arm bar is tight, you got to respect it. If they got, if the person got there by accident, if their technique is janky, whatever. If it's choking you, you can't just ignore it. If your arm's about to get broken, you just can't ignore it. So you can say whatever you want about the choke, and we can, um, and Sage's resistance to it. But again, I sort of said, if you look at that final sequence or that final moment, <clears throat> pardon me, right before the tap is elicited, and you said, okay, let's take this position. And let's go to every jiu-jitsu school in America tonight. And what we'll do is we'll start one person on the bottom, one person on the top in pairs in every school. And we'll say, person on bottom, this is the exact same position that Sage Northcutt was in with the exact same amount of pressure. Ready? Escape or reverse position? Go. Now, what you're going to find is a lot of people are going to get submitted. A lot of people are going to get submitted. Some are going to escape as well for any number of reasons um, because they don't have quite the same musculature in the neck to pinch things. Maybe the person doesn't have quite the same squeeze Barbarina did. 
Um, by the time he had let it get that bad, there were not a lot of great options. The last option, as I mentioned on the choke, was people said it was a Von Flu choke. It is not a Von Flu choke. For a Von Flu choke to be true, the one hand that's being pushed against your head, it, you know, if Barbarina's head is right here, this hand has to be trapped. If it's not trapped, you have options. And if you, the options, you can build a side control, and you're essentially unwinding the choke. Because remember, if you go to side control with a true Von Flu, because their hand is trapped, the shoulder's still getting draw, uh, driven in here, they can't escape. So you ask yourself, what's the difference between a Von Flu and a head and arm? A head and arm doesn't work from side control. There's just, there's just not enough. Uh, I'm sorry, opposite side side control. If you're cross-body with someone, Right, if you're cross body with them, it doesn't it doesn't work. There's no choke there. You have to get usually all the way to the other side and begin. In a von flu choke, you can do it from side control because everything is trapped. The Monday morning analyst exp- explains this as well. Some of the mechanics of Barbarina's lean uh, are von flu ish, but it's not a von flu choke. It's a head and arm triangle. It's just a very very deep head and arm triangle from that position, and you can tell because you can see that the back of the tricep and the back of the deltoid here was on the back of Barbarina's neck. I mean, he had inched up there in a way that was, like, shocking for um, opposite side half guard. He was very, very deep on that choke. So whether he tapped quick or didn't tap quick, you know, I don't know. Uh, It's not – I don't think that's the crux of the debate. The crux of the debate is what did you do to let a guy up there? And as I pointed out in the video pretty clearly, there's a moment where he's getting banged on on top from Barbarina, and he wraps Barbarina's head as he lays to his left hip. But he's not sitting for a guillotine. He doesn't get on his elbow and try to sit out. Nothing. He just kind of lays there. Folks, sorry, critical mistake. You gave Barbarina the very choke he needed. Now, Barbarina then inched up, and 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 Sage still didn't do anything. So to me, you could, was the tap quick? Was it not quick? I don't know. I mean, it was, I mean, maybe it was a little quick, but whatever. It's not... Maybe it wasn't quick at all. I don't know. The problem was that in there were key positions in that mo- in the moment of attack under Barbarina where he made real bad choices. If you get submitted, it's because you made bad choices, whether you're a white belt with one-month experience or you're a black belt with 20. If you get submitted by somebody else, you made bad choices. That's just the end of it. You have to always think of it that way. You don't want to beat yourself up over it, not saying you can't get better, for Azahabi, I always talk about you got to show your cards in jiu-jitsu. You showed your cards, and you got beat, and you just got beat. That's the end of it. You made a bad choice somewhere, um, and you have to go and identify those. His and that sequence are readily identifiable. It doesn't tell us anything about his future because he's so young and so athletic and has such potential with a world-class gap around him. It doesn't really tell us much about his mental fortitude, I don't believe, um, at least not in any kind of declarative way, but it does tell us that his current game Needs some work. And really, the other part about this that I, I think is just needs to just be addressed, and again, I will move on from this, is uh, the degree to which his supporters infantilize him is shocking. Shocking. Look, when he comes out and he says, I had an illness, I had strep throat, um, this affected my performance, I, I believe him. I certainly believe him. But you mean to tell me, you had, first of all, you went and you chose to fight anyway. So at some point, you have to accept responsibility for the condition in which you were in. Then you go and you compete. You make some bad choices that I'm not sure you can directly tie to the strep throat. I mean, I don't think it helped in any kind of way, but it's not clear one-to-one what impacted what. 
Then you lose, and your first instinct is to talk about that fact to kind of undercut or mitigate the public perception of the loss. That's a little bit of a red flag, a little bit. I mean, not entirely because, again, he's so young that there's so much potential for change. You don't want to be too certain about it, but if that was Jose Aldo getting slept and someone comes out and he comes out and he says, you know what, I had I had strep throat, y'all would burn him at the stake. You would burn him at the stake. It, it, there's the the, the um, people are treating Sage Northcutt's loss and the criticism of him. There is some unfair criticism. I think people who are saying he's mentally weak, it's just not fair. It's it's just not fair. It's just not fair. But people like me who are saying your game is just not ready, and your attitude towards punishment might need a little bit of work too, which are things he can work on. I mean, he's not Noguera. Okay, fine. A lot of people aren't Noguera. That's no that's no scandal. But maybe there's a little bit more that can be polished up in terms of keeping composure under fire um, to make some better choices. And uh, and I think that's a very fair criticism. And people are like treating him like he's dying in St. Jude's Hospital as an 11-year-old kid or something. He's 19. We'll cut him a little bit of slack. But this is the measurement. You are in the ultimate fighting championship. Welcome to the big leagues. We're not going to slide our scale too much to accommodate you. Either you are ready for this level or you are not. And it's okay if you're not. It's not the end of the world. It's not a major scandal. It doesn't mean you don't have a future. None of that stuff. It just means you're a little green. He's a little green. It's okay to say that. He made some real bad, clearly identifiable choices in that fight that were just bad, objectively bad. A bad. Wrapping someone's head like that as you're leaning to a hip is just so bad. It's so bad. You should be able to say that. You should be able to say that. And then you lose in that way, and then you you go out and you complain about having an illness. I'm sure the illness affected you, but but it seems to me that the toughening process that has to happen precludes you from going to the media and saying things like that. It would actually be the opposite reaction you should have. Um, again, I think he'll be. I think he'll recover from this. And again. He'll come out in his next fight, and he may blow the doors off somebody, and and we can put a lot of this discussion to bed. The true fact about Sage Northcutt is we don't know what his future is going to be, and people who say it's not going to be bright, they simply don't know that to be true. It's They don't know that. They don't know that. They're just assuming that. But what is true is that, hey, time to buck up a little bit, camper. I mean, you know, you could say, well, Luke, you couldn't do anything like that, and you'd be more than right. But I don't try to be. I know my limits. I don't, I'm not cut out for that. I don't have the constitution for it. But if you're saying that you do and you want to go out there and compete, we're going to hold you to a standard. We're going to measure it. Either you make the grade or you don't. And if you don't, we're going to say you didn't, and we're going to say why. Stop infantilizing this guy. Stop. It's absurd. We're allowed to criticize him. I don't care if he's a nice guy. I don't care if he, you know, he's not some 11-year-old kid delivering his paper route and he fell off his bike and scuffed his knee. This is the ultimate fighting championship. You're going to have the the highest level of scrutiny in the mixed martial arts world if you want to compete there. Fact. Fact. And you want to take 40 and 40? Fine. Do it. Go go make money, man. I hope hope, hope the kid gets paid. I hope hope he's rich. Richer than his parents, even. But you're not going to escape scrutiny. You're just not. And and some of that's going to be unfair, and I don't condone any of the unfair criticism. But the fair criticism, you need to have a discussion about it. It's it's more than fine. Stop infantilizing this kid. He's made grown adult decisions to compete with other grown adults. Well, guess what? You're going to have a grown adult standard held against you, whether you're ready for it or not. All right.
UFC fighters tagging Nike and Nike training on Instagram last week. Don Cerrone and Greg Jackson and Ian McCall posted Instagram pictures wearing Nike gear and tagging Nike and Nike training. Also, a magazine called Strong teased a photo from their photo shoot with Holly Holm, and it's her in a Nike top. Do you see these last week? Is Jackson just trolling because of Cerrone's recent fine? Uh, yeah, I don't know what the answer to that is. I think some of us are looking into it, but I don't know what it. I don't know what it means. I mean, look. Is there any real debate anymore that there is some level of dissatisfaction about the Reebok deal? I think there are some people in the UFC um, and in certain positions that might feel that it's no big deal. That Benson Henderson clearly articulated that one of his reasons, a very big reason, for signing with Bellator was the fact that he had the ability to make significantly more income than what he was allotted by his seniority in the in the uh, UFC system as funded by Reebok. Um. There's clearly dissatisfaction about it, and then you sort of get into the monetary policy fine issues, or I call them the the uh, the the monetary fines from vi- policy violation. Yeah, there is some discontent. How far and how wide we can have a debate, but it's pretty palpable. As to whether there's a Reebok deal, I don't know. Oh yeah, Nike deal. I'm sorry. Uh, as a trainer, the most fascinating part of Dos Anjos McGregor is the clash of strength and conditioning philosophies and modalities. Dos Anjos is state of the art plyometric balance power training versus McGregor's eccentric prio preceptive based stabilization strength movement training do you think the winner in a prolonged bout can set a paradigm shift in mma's approach to strength and conditioning i am and always have been a strong advocate for the integrated performance paradigm for not just mma but all sports its body of work and undeniable results should be more than enough to implement in your strength and conditioning regimen nick kirsten has it right you can work on technique and skill all you want but if you don't have the mechanism to execute that technique or skill um it is all for naught Well, in some ways, I don't know that you're asking about the winner setting a paradigm shift. Dos Anjos is the product in terms of his strength and conditioning routine of the paradigm shift, of the, the, the prevalent paradigm shift. The emerging one that you're talking about with McGregor, the eccentric, prio-prio-prio-based stabilization strength movement. Um, again, but those, I think, are still going to be somewhat out of reach for the average fighter due to cost and that skill set is not widely available. In other words, um, if you want to hire a Muay Thai trainer, there are many around. If you want to hire a movement coach uh, or any kind of functional movement coach or, or you know, parkour coach or something like that, they're growing in number, but there are not a ton of them. So it would be, you know, their services are might be in demand, but they're going to be just, it's just going to be a scarcity of resources um, to do that, which might drive the price up or, you know, just simply, um, you know, uh, geographic location might preclude you from even looking at that as an option. So, so that's something to keep in mind as well. UFC 200 week to feature three cards. I was listening to the Jordan Breen show yesterday with, and Greg Savage said he heard the UFC are planning on doing three cards that week, similar to UFC 194. Do you think this is a good approach in building up to the main card or is it too much of a good thing? I think if the lesson of 194 shows us anything, was that three might be too much? Um, cause the second one kind of gets left out a little bit, but maybe not. The, the only question there is if they have the roster space for it, if they have the roster to fill out three cards, if they don't, it'll feel like a drag. Um, but as I mentioned before, UFC 194 worked because you had such a great UFC 194 pay-per-view main card. Um, and then you had those two other cards built around it. And so there was this dynamic presence about everything that you had this clear crescendo moment where everything was going in one direction, where everything was, the, I mentioned, I think I called it a castle. You were building a kingdom around it. Um, they've shown that can work. Whether they've shown that can work routinely 
We'll find out. Deep divisions. Out of curiosity, when would you consider a division deep? And what are your opinion of the deepest weight classes in UFC? It's not even deepest weight classes in UFC. Deepest weight classes in MMA are lightweight and welterweight men's. Um, and those are because those are worldwide good. And I think the reason for that is pretty clear is that those kinds of guys, um, with some exception, of course, uh, in many cases, something like soccer, I would suppose, would be an even bigger exception. But certainly in this country, um, you know, guys who can fight in the lightweight division, they're probably going to be too small to take part in many stick and ball sports. Certainly something like um, basketball is simply out of reach. You know, if you're a 5'9 and you can fight 155 pounds, hard for me to see exactly how you're going to fit onto an NFL roster. I mean, you might get some running backs that size, um, but they're going to be bulked up closer to 200 anyway. So point being said is is just that they the the talent pool isn't as depleted. And, um, and so you just see a lot more people of that size and shape um, being able to compete in something like MMA who are tremendous athletes, but otherwise would not have the same kind of athletic outlet. If you are six foot four and 250 pounds and you're as athletic as Cam Newton, you're going to have some options. You know, there's going to be some, there's a lot of different sports you could play. Um, you know, if you're Joseph Benavidez, and that's not what you're asking here necessarily, but just to make an exaggerated example, you qualify for a lot less. Um, but it doesn't mean you're not a good athlete. It just means we don't have a spectator sport athlete that has, outside of MMA, recruited their services. So there's less competition for resources. I think that is probably the bigger issue. It can't just be the case that um, 155 or 170 is good in the UFC and good in many other organizations, right? The, the fact is that those talent pools are... Um, have a much wider participatory rate because those guys are recruited less, I think, to other sports. There might be some other factors contributing to that that I'm uh, not including here, and so uh, I don't want to. I don't want to suggest that's the sole primary reason for that, um, but it's certainly a major contributor. Uh, all right, it's an interesting question. This is a different one. Were the many fighters who bashed Northcutt after his loss yet another example of their misguided thinking on finances? It was disturbing to see veteran fighters come out of the woodwork to bash a kid who's been nothing but respectful toward everyone. Who cares if he's nice? Why is that relevant? Who cares? Oh, he's friendly. Okay, cool. That's great. So what? Presumably only because the UFC pays him more than they get and has marketed him heavily. Okay, that's true. Instead of putting their heads together to see how they can collectively better fighter pay. I, I just love the sliding scale here, first of all. McGregor is like incredibly rude to his opponents, and everyone eats it up and loves it. Sage is so respectful, and everyone eats it up and loves it. Like, decide what it is you want, you know, what, or decide what it is that it's okay to be. Here's the truth it's okay to be a jerk, it's okay to be nice, but neither of those are particularly special. Um, Instead of putting their heads together to see how they can collectively better fighter pay, they take their frustrations out on a 19-year-old. Meanwhile, the UFC get, gets away with paying them peanuts without said fighters lobbying nary a harsh word at the company. Well, I mean, guys, are we really confused about why this is happening? They are upset that someone like Northcutt, who is clearly of a, um, a growing 
but limited ability is making the kind of money that he is not realizing that this UFC is in part and mostly a fighting league and also in part a reality show. Um, that's what, that's what Sage Northcutt is in part. It's the, it's a gamble that he will eventually become somebody very, very good. But in the interim, if that doesn't work out, it's still a real time reality show, right? That's what it is. Um, they don't understand that there's a certain amount of value that comes with that and that people that, and here's the truth, people naturally gravitate to Northcutt as well. There's undeniable fact. Um, I think we saw that in the, well, we saw that in the wins he had, but in the losses, we really saw that there are people who are very defensive about him because they really like him. They're really attached to him. Um, so that's real, but you know, why, why, a fighter fight, unionizing and collectively getting together is a skill. It's a skill none of these guys have. They don't know where to start. They wouldn't know how to do it. Many of them probably don't feel it's in their interest because they don't have any leveraging power with the UFC. These are the kinds of things they need outside assistance with. They're never going to have the skills to do it anyway. If you look at the history of, of unionization in sports generally, the guys who were there, the baseball players, they didn't know how to do it. They had to get someone who was a, a professional organizer to come over and help and assist them. These are skills in the world that, that you need that if you don't have, it doesn't matter how much desire you have to unionize and of course they're going to lash out at him because that's the easy they can lash out at him without too much consequence they can't lash out at ufc without too much consequence it's a very simple it's a very simple way to understand this guys are making this out to be like some scandal about it and i agree that some of the things that were said about him were particularly harsh but um but that's because it, it's simple cost benefit analysis they can get away with it one place and they probably feel like they can't in another but to your point the animosity comes from the fact that you know these guys probably feel like they don't get enough money. Well, whose fault is that? Well, you know, there's a lot of different ways to parse that question, but um, it's not Sage Northcutt's fault. But he's an easy target, and so therefore he's going to be the subject of their ire. But to me, it's not in any way like, gee, why did they do that? Well, of course they did that because they can and they can't. Simple. It's, it reminds me of a guy whose boss abuses him at work. He takes it but kicks the cat once he gets home. Yeah, maybe. As if it's Northcutt's fault he doesn't turn down getting paid 40 and 40 at 19 years old. I agree. It's not Sage, Sage making 40 and 40 is to me. I mean, if they paid him 400, I wouldn't care. Go get paid. Like people want to see you go get paid. 40 and 40 is not a ton of money for a pro athlete. Uh, will fighters ever learn who's really taking advantage of them and who isn't? Every time I think they're getting closer to more clarity about this, something happens which shows me no, they probably aren't. I don't think any of these reasons you're citing are ultimately limiting factors. People keep talking about the existential reality of fighters not wanting to get together. I don't buy any of that. I simply buy that they don't know how to make the next step forward. If you could show them a clear path and they believe they could get there to a place where they could collectively bargain for a higher salary, a higher base pay, higher you know tiers of pay depending on their performance or whatever the case may be, a higher revenue share, a rev share of the TV deal, a rev share of anything else that came their way, um, getting their likeness rights in video games, all, all kinds of things. I think you would find a lot less of this, but they don't see any path to that. They may not recognize that one actually exists. And so therefore they're going to lash out at an easy target, even if it's totally unfair. And that's what they did. Now, again, some of their criticisms are fair. If you're going to get paid 40 and 40, and there's a guy out there who's not making 40 and 40, he's making 14 and 14, and he can beat the brakes off the guy 40 and 40, I can understand why he might be a little bit frustrated. You know, that's not Sage Northcutt's fault. But if they're saying other things like, well, this guy's technique is not great in certain respects, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. But no, like calling him a, uh, I mean, 
the P word, the what the five letter P word, uh, which is a which is slang for female genitalia. I don't I don't I don't like that so much. I don't think that's very fair. But G Willikers, Sage sure is a nice guy. He delivers the beat that that eleven year old boy delivers the the papers on time. I'm always able to do my crossword puzzle on Sundays because Sage Northcutt bikes his route like a good eleven year old boy does. Let me come and pat you on the head, Sage. Stop infantilizing him. Uh, Luke, what are your thoughts on Bendo moving to Bellator and fighting for the welterweight title against Koreshkov? Personally, would you rather see Benson go for the lightweight title against Brooks instead? Well, this is such an interesting... um, Boy, there's so many moving parts here, right? Very interesting. First of all, I think it's a great move for Benson Henderson. I think it's a great move for... I don't know, a great move for UFC, but an understandable one, too. Look, if someone said to you... Here's a simple question. And it's kind of the one they asked with Jake Shields, too, although that was a little bit different because any number of specifics to Jake Shields. But are Benson Henderson's best days behind him or in front of him in terms of his ability to achieve in mixed martial arts at the highest level? I think you would say they're probably behind them. Behind him. Now, we don't know that. We're just guessing. All of this is a guesswork. That's the first part. Number two, even if his very best days are behind in that regard, um, that doesn't mean he still doesn't have very, very good ones ahead. Very good ones ahead. I think that's another thing to consider. It's like, okay, I don't know if he'll ever be UFC lightweight champion again. In that sense, he won't be able to compete. But he's hardly done. He's still got a lot of fire left and a lot of ability left. And so that can be used really interestingly. So in that sense, um, it makes sense why UFC would want to keep him a little bit, but also why Bellator would want to send him or would want to accept him and and and, and have him. Because in that sense, it's to me that because here's the other part about it which you didn't ask. Brooks looks like he's gonna fight out his contract. I think he wants to go to fight in the UFC. Seems that's the way here. And and to me, that makes all the sense in the world. Henderson realizes he's probably not going to be champion again in the UFC if for no other reason that it's going to be hard just to get a title shot to begin with, right? Not saying he can't beat those guys again, just, you know, realistically, it's very hard to get one. And and then considering all the many he's had and all the close fights he had. And then, moreover, he can make a good coin at Bellator. He can be a champion, maybe two weight class champion. And he's already tasted the high, the high life of the UFC. He's already been a part of the big weigh-ins and the big press conferences and everything else, and he's seen all the big crowds. He's already done all that. I think now he's realizing, 32, I've got some time left. I want to make as much money as possible before this show comes to a close. The best fit for him, if that's if those are his priorities, are to be in Bellator because he's got a, he's he's a you know he'll be a big fish in a smaller pond there, small pond. He'll have an opportunity to go two weight classes much more easily. He gets automatic title shot, like he just gets treated better. Um, you know, relatively speaking, for his interests there. By contrast, Brooks has not tasted that yet. He's still young. He's still got goals. He already became champion. He still has some things he wants to see in his career. And it sounds like the UFC limelight is what he wants to do. So it sounds like there's going to be an even trade there. What's interesting to me about the whole thing is that, you know, Benson Henderson is in a central critical step in Bellator um, 
being able to move away from the freak show dynamic. I, I'm not saying that Bellator, even if they had a much better roster, would stop with the freak show fights altogether. There might be some part of them that feels like this could be a calling card that's successful for us no matter what. Um, but I think that you know they're doubling up on it when the next one um, in the main in the main and co-main event. I think the more they get a legitimate roster, the less they have to do of that. Adding Benson Henderson to the roster is, I don't know if adding Benson Henderson to the roster is a is a step in that process. There have to be many more steps for them to really begin to affect some change. But this was a critical one. However, what the situation illustrates is that. Guys fighting out their contracts are not, this is not a UFC exclusive problem. Um, other guys are doing it, namely Will Brooks. So I thought it'd be an interesting spark to have him go right down to um, lightweight and get the title shot. Then he gets the welterweight title shot. It looks like he got the welterweight title shot. You know, if, if Brooks's Twitter account is to be believed that, you know, um, his lack of willingness to I think continue and sign a new contract with them, and rather than you know, and instead fight it out, precluded him from getting a title shot against Benson Henderson. Uh, that's his interpretation of things. I will certainly ask Scott Coker about that um, in a couple of weeks. In well, not even a couple, yeah, a couple of weeks in. Um, where is that? Houston. So I'll ask him about that. But um, I, I personally would prefer to see the fight against Brooks. But I'm just happy to see a guy get paid in a way he wants to get paid and do what he wants to do. And and everyone's saying, oh, well, I want to see all the best in one organization. Again, my view is if you can give those guys a fighter's union and they can get a, a real rev share deal, I do think the one model is better. But in the absence of that, having two is better. And frankly, you know, we've seen Benson Henderson fight a lot of those guys. There's going to be a bunch of fresh matchups for him at – Bellator and not all of them are going to be easy some might be easy some won't there's some tough guys over there you know um we'll see what he can do so I think it's exciting I think it's good I think it's good for Bellator I think it's good for Ben Benson Henderson and UC doesn't really it's not really all that bad for them it's not awesome it's not amazing but they'll be okay all right so someone's asking me for our early predictions on some of these fights okay early predictions Ferguson Nurmagomedov, five round fight. Man, with, ordinarily I would say Nurmagomedov, but with the layoff, I don't know. I'll say Ferguson. I have a, I reserve the right to change my mind. Evans Shogun, probably Evans. Machida Hendo, Machida. Kohea Pennington, Pennington. Brown versus Maya, probably Maya. Swanson versus Diaz, Swanson. Feely versus Yair Rodriguez. Rodriguez. Benson versus Koreshkov. Benson. Volante versus Latifi. That's a tough one, man. Um, I'll say Latifi. Nunes versus Shevchenko. Another tough one. I'll say Nunes. Pearson versus Trujillo. I'll say Trujillo. Uh, Luke, is there a way to support your work? I know that spread the word about the podcast already helps, but I was thinking about something else like Patreon. Patreon? I'm sure your uh, Patreons, Patreons would love to get some extra content from you. Um, I'll look into that. I don't even know what that is. I'm assuming it's something like GoFundMe or something. But I appreciate the support. I, I don't know that that's necessary, but thank you. 
Jake Shields. What do you know about the, you, the World Series of Fighting and Jake Shields situation? And seeing as UFC is maybe not the best place for his tough guy style, would you like to see him at the Bellator? I would because a he has a relationship with Scott Coker going back many years, as we well know. Although that got kind of burned when, um, you know, he went to the UFC. But um, you never know; they could maybe rekindle things. Business being what it is, and uh, then want to solidify their welterweight division to bring contenders to Benson Henderson. That could be important. So he has a new value in that regard. Um, but yeah, look, promoters compete for fighters on the open market by any number of monetary or uh, other means, uh, exposure means, promotional means, whatever the case, they, they, they try to offer these package deals that appeal to fighters. They also do tricks that try to handcuff fighters to uh, onerous contracts. This appears to be a very clear-cut case of that. Um, the, the, the champion's clause that re-ups you... Um, is is onerous and burdensome and uh, unfair to fighters. It doesn't matter if World Series of Fighting is doing it, if Bellator is doing it, if UFC is doing it. doesn't matter. It's a bull-ass um, provision that is done because fighters are a very scarce resource and promoters want to do everything possible to not make sure, or to make sure, I should say, that they don't get out of their grasp. That's the first thing that needs to be done away with. The first thing. Swear to God. got people blowing me up all right okay let's see here what's best for the f- oh sorry given rumble's recent wrestling and grappling improvements and the fact that he wasn't training for dc at the time do you think rumble would get would fare better and possibly beat dc in a full camp rematch it's an interesting question it's one that we may find a resolution to my hunch is that no because people have noted that I think the majority of his losses, if not all of them, uh, have been rear naked choke losses. When he left UFC and then came back, I wanted to see how much better some of his wrestling was. And it is significantly better. His takedown defense from people shooting from the outside is lights out. But if you can get an underhook on him and then double underhooks, uh, he becomes a much more manageable task. Some guys can work on things forever and they simply don't get better. Some guys can work on them and they get the problem ceases to exist. You know, so um, it's an interesting question. It's one you can't answer with any kind of certainty. But my hunch is that after all this time, shoring up a just a problem he has with with, with that kind of wrestling um, is going to be difficult for him if it hasn't already been rectified. That also being said, you know, uh, we saw he almost put Cormier's lights out last time. So I don't think the question is in any way um, firmly answered. My hunch is that I don't think. These recent improvements are uh, the recent improvements are probably marginal at best, and certainly um, the Bader fight doesn't really show that Bader didn't drive an underhook on him. He was shot away from the outside and then just kind of turtled up. That doesn't really tell us a whole lot because we already knew that that kind of shot on Anthony Johnson does not work. His takedown defense from there is outstanding, truly elite. It's just that when you can drive that underhook and you can get it, game kind of changes a little bit. All right, what's best for the fans? Bellator adding Sterling, Mitrion, and Overeem, or UFC spending the money and keeping them? Um, geez, depends on what the fans' preferences are. Um, if you want to see Overeem get a title shot, it's best that Overeem stays in UFC, if that's the most important thing to you. If it's the most important thing to you that Overeem compete 
um, in kickboxing and MMA and runs a division and that they put other guys around him he can fight, it's best to go to Bellator. Again, if you got a young guy in Bellator, it's gonna, it's always going to be easier for an experienced person to go to Bellator than it is for an inex, inexperienced person to stay there, because the inex and I and again, Will Brooks is a champion, so I don't I, I use the word inexperienced very loosely here, but I just mean it's one thing for a guy who was a dream champion in K one and Strike Force and fought in UFC and had wins and had losses, and now in this sort of la- latter chapter of his career to then go to Bellator, it's not as much of a dramatic loss. You would lose the the, the title shot. And I think that would be upsetting for some fans, understandably. But it's not like the end of the world. It's very, very different than what you had with Eddie Alvarez under the Bjorn Rebney era, where you feel like this guy had hit a ceiling of the most interesting things he could do, and there was a whole lot left for him. And he, you know, he was these, it was these tantalus where he always reached for the grapes, and as soon as they did, they withered and died. Right? It was that. It's that sort of thing where uh, it, 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 it's much easier to accept an older fighter a veteran fighter moving to Bellator than it is a younger fighter being staying in Bellator, I think, for most fans. So I don't think that these guys you mentioned, with the exception of Sterling, changes that. But again, Sterling Sterling's going to be an interesting case because um, we're really going to see how much it matters to the UFC to keep somebody like him. You know, how, how, how worth it is it to you? I think it'd be better for the fans if Sterling stayed in UFC, to be perfectly honest. I don't think it'd be the end of the world if he went to Bellator, by any stretch of the imagination. And Bellator would need to add someone like that to really solidify some of their growing divisions. Um, Bellator's got decent 145, 155 divisions. Okay, welterweight. Okay, bantamweight. Um, Sterling would be a fun addition to that. But um, but um, what's best for the fans? I think many fans would say keep them all under one roof, understandably. I think some might say you could lose Mitrione. Some might say you could lose Mitrione and Overeem. Some might say you could lose all of them. It depends on the preferences. Most fans probably want to keep everyone under one roof. But uh, I think they would find a way to live with other guys making money and having new opportunities in a new organization. That's the truth. So, Patreon is how you pronounce that word, apparently. Patreon. Okay. UFC loan system. Given the manner of his recent loss, it is being said that perhaps Sage Northcutt was too green for the big push he was given. Well, it's obvious he was too green. Thanks to Fight Pass, the UFC have a good relationship with a number of smaller promotions. In the future, could you foresee the UFC utilizing a system similar to the loan system in football where they sign them up, young talent, and then farm them out until they get requisite experience. For example, you see, you could get the likes of Northcutt under contract and then let him fight and tighten their victory for a couple of years. Uh, almost like soccer, right? Sign a guy, then put him out on loan to some scrub team so he gets better. Um, they've done this to an extent. Even, even George St. Pierre, if I'm not mistaken, I think he sneaked in a TKO fight, the organization, not the... Um, not the outcome after his first UFC win over Caro, if I'm not mistaken. Let me see. Excuse me. After his loss to Hughes, after his loss to Hughes, he went back and fought in TKO against Dave Strasser, uh, and then came back against Jason Miller. 
Um, so I'm not sure exactly what the situation was there, but they, they've done that where they've had guys under contract and let them, you know, fight one fight here or, you know, do something there. Less so in the modern era, but it's not unheard of. I, I think it'd be a good idea, honestly. If they want to do that and loan guys out to people on the Fight Pass network so that you could still watch them, I think it'd be a good idea. You know, um, it'd be complicated about who pays his salary and everything else. Uh, if it's the cyborg and victim model, it would be UFC. But um, sure, there's just a lot of guys. If, if you're it, look, look, if you're going to be in the business of signing people earlier and earlier in their potential development, and that's not necessarily directly correlated with age, although there's obviously a lot of overlap with those two characteristics. But if you're if that's the business you're going to be in, okay, fine. But then that means you need to adjust your business at the bottom to make sure that there is as I like to call it, the common standard of excellence. The UFC has a common standard of excellence. And I don't think we fully appreciate that sometimes until you see a situation like Sage Northcutt where he does a lot of interesting things. He's promotionally very interesting. A lot of people like him. A lot of people want to see him do well. He's simply not ready for um, this level of the game. And the fact is, it may only be a year two, three more fights in a year where we could say most of these issues have been addressed and then you bring him right back up. The rest of the time he's competing on Fight Pass, you know. That might be kind of a cool thing for him. Um, but, you know, moving him to Fight Pass, to Fox Sports 1, or whatever it was, or Fox Sports 1 to Fight Pass to to Big Fox, whatever the trajectory was, um, it just seemed like a lot. You know, three fights in four months. And, yeah, there was a weight class. The weight class changed to me is sort of irrelevant. But um, especially since he was sick, like, if he was really sick, then the weight class change was actually good for him, you know. Uh, and Barbarina's not some hulking monster at 170 anyway. And he's a natural lightweight himself. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think it'd be. I think it's a really interesting and great idea. I'd like to see it, and I think they've got the mechanisms to do it. You know, give a guy a couple of fights, man. Get let him get two, three fight camps um, under his belt, just not having to worry about satisfying the fans. It'd be good for your fight pass. It'd be good for those shows. You know, it may not be what the UFC needs. Star power is at a premium. They're, they need as much of that as possible. They need to milk it as often as they can. So it makes some tough choices for him. But And really, let's just be honest about Sage Northcutt's loss. It's probably good for him. Can you imagine if he had won that fight and then had to move up and fight someone I- even better than that? You know, who knows what kind of bad things happen. You, what you don't want for Sage Northcutt, and this is the good thing about, you know, let's say it was a quick tap. The quick tap is almost good. I'm not saying it was a quick tap. Again, I think the Gracie video kind of talked about that a little bit, saying it was, you know, if you look at the the longer application of the choke, there might be some reasons to think that it was much longer than before. That's probably true. Let's say it's not. Let's say that's not true. Let's say it was a quick tap. The quick tap's probably pretty good. What you don't want is a 19-year-old kid going in there and taking a beating. That's what you don't want. And he was getting, you know, roughed up a little bit, but he wasn't taking a beating exactly. Um, it's good that he got out of there pretty quickly. Didn't take a lot of damage. Didn't really show any facial damage much when he was on that hoverboard with that terrible jumper he had or free throw he had or whatever it was, the shot from the open floor. Um, he looked pretty good. And on our show on Monday, he looked good. That's what you want. You don't want a kid like that taking a ton of damage. So even if the tap was quick, it's probably a pretty good thing. But but this is my point. Like you, 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 He needs time. He just needs time. He just needs time. We don't even really know who he is, to be honest. Because he just, this is so much so fast. And if he had won against Brian Barbarina and they had put him against someone like kind of legit and that dude just 
pummeled him, who would that benefit? Who would that benefit? You know, Paige Van Zandt took a beating. It's not, she's a little bit older, but still not what you want. That's not ideal. That she's unbowed and undeterred is a separate issue. All right, people keep asking about it. Ben Rothwell's go-go choke. What is going on with it? Mitrione tapped like his life was in danger and Barnett tapped. Barnett! I know you've been extolling the innovations of the guillotines lately, but how long typically does it take for other BJJ players to develop defenses against new twists on old themes? Right now, it seems like Big Ben is carrying a pocket knife um, into the cage with him. So this is a great question. So turns out that they... So if you watch the Monday Morning Analyst, you'll know that I called Ben Rothwell and sent an uh, email to his coach, Luis Claudio, both of which went unreturned. And someone else who I think trains at that school or trained with Louise told me that um, they're purposely not telling people because there's going to be a DVD coming out or something. So, okay, that's why you can't get an answer, apparently. I don't know what the true answer is. Again, Monday Morning Analyst goes through what the 10-figure guillotine is and what this all might be. But for me, um, it really depends. It depends on how many different guys start using it. So, for example, you have someone like Marcelo Garcia who has a big school and all those guys know the Marcelo teen varieties and they all do it. And even to the point where it kind of affected MMA generally, it was such a prevalent thing that so many schools began to do it. I don't know if the go-go choke is going to be that way. Cause also there's a million different Marcelo Garcia, and Marcelo teens. There's not just one of them. There's a lot of different varieties, but um, you get the idea there. Th- that was such a compelling body of work that spread to his school and all his students and eventually had an effect on M- and MMA really and jiu-jitsu generally. That would be different than someone like Majid Hage. Majid Hage, uh, you can look him up, M-A-G-I-D, first name, last name, H-A-G-E. He has what's called a baseball bat choke. Now, a baseball bat choke is when in the gi, if you're on your back and I'm on top and I'm on neon belly, I'm going to grip my hands around the back of your head, around your gi, like a baseball bat grip. And I'm going to use that. I'm going to slide this elbow down on your neck and I'm going to come and twist around the top. And I keep my hands like a baseball grip and it is a vicious, vicious choke. Most people are taught the baseball bat choke from some kind of topside position, typically neon belly. Neon belly, you're trying to elicit a reaction. You're trying to drive pressure down into them. You want their hands to come up. Sometimes they won't. You get the baseball bat choke to get their hands up so maybe you can finish the choke or you can establish something else as their elbows come off their body or whatever the case may be. Majid Hage has a special thing where Majid Hage has, he will give you side control and he'll do it from side control and then twist underneath. And he put out... um, he put out Clark Gracie to sleep, and he put out that kid from Metamorphosis, who the Gracie Humata guy, I can't remember anymore. Um, oh, God, that's embarrassing. Whatever the case, he put him out in the same tournament, the same one. Now, there's videos of Majid Hage's baseball bat choke. The baseball bat choke of the variety that Majid Hage has done it has not spread to the jiu-jitsu world. It's been one of those things where, like, if you go up against him, you got to be aware of it. Maybe one of his students, you got to be aware of it. But it's not so disseminated that everyone has to be aware of it. My hunch is that the go-go choke is going to kind of be like that because there are so many good, different guillotine varieties already. Majid Hage has mastered that baseball bat choke, but not a lot of guys just want to be in sight control generally. They're just not comfortable doing that. Majid Hage might be. He might be He might be willing to do that. But it's just not, it, it doesn't set itself up in the same kind of way. Also, we don't know to what extent, 
you know, maybe this is a heavyweight guillotine and won't work necessarily the same kind of way for lighter weight fighters. We don't know enough about the choke yet to say something about it. So my hunch is that it's going to be uh, a weapon for Ben Rothwell every single time. And it's going to be a weapon for any kind of Claudio, a Luis Claudio student at a high level. How much beyond that? We'll see. We'll see about that. Last thing about this, and I didn't mention this in the Monday Morning Analyst, and I kind of wish I did, uh, about Josh Barnett. He got his head on the inside on that single against the fence, which is what you're typically supposed to do to stop the guillotine. And Rothwell just locked it up from the other side. So if his head's on the outside, what would you do? You'd reach here. So Barnett brings it across and puts it on the inside. So what does Rothwell do? Slides over and catches it. That was kind of interesting to me, first of all. Um, second part about that is, um, yeah, Josh Barnett had some issues against the fence, huh? Against Travis Brown, couldn't get the takedown. Against Ben Rothwell, couldn't get the takedown. And then against the fence, got chewed up. Someone tweet, or, uh, tweeted me something like this, and I think it's true. If you're a heavyweight and you can't get the takedown right away against the fence, you need to bail. You need to bail right away. Because something bad's going to happen to you. You're going to get elbowed into living death. <laughs> you're going to get guillotined. You're going to get go-go choked. There's not a lot of good outcomes after that fact. You 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 need to you need to do something about it. So, interesting thing to think about there that you see a lot of these lighter weight guys do a lot of fence wrestling, particularly on the fight pass portion of a card. There might be a case to be made that an elite MMA for heavyweights, if you're against the fence and you can't quickly affect change. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. All right. People keep asking about what makes the go-go choke effective. I don't know. Why is USADA catching fewer people? Since starting USADA has caught T-Bow and Romero, the six months prior USADA caught five fighters, including Silva and other big names. Is USADA actually more effective? I get asked this question all the time. I don't think we have enough information yet. Dana's goodbye to Bendo. What'd you make of Dana's fare thee well statement to Benson Henderson upon the fighter's departure to Bellator? Dana has, ta Dana has taken a lot of flack for it, so was he being nice or nasty? Here's the truth. He might be top 15, Benson Henderson, at welterweight, but he was unequivocal top five when he left lightweight. So it was a little bit of an unfair statement, but... It harkens back to what I asked initially. If I asked you, in terms of elite MMA fighting uh, at the highest level, are Benson Henderson's best days ahead of him or behind him? And again, we don't know the answer to that. I, I fully concede as much. But if we're being honest, the most the likeliest answer is that it's probably behind, while we can also admit there's still a lot of very, very good action and ability and desire and pushing and, and everything else ahead of him. So when we say it's not the very best, we're not saying it's a it's a much lesser version. We're saying it's maybe a tick off the very best. Um, and if that's the case, and you're the UFC, and you don't want to overpay for that guy, it makes sense to let him go. Dana's way of handling situations is to give a lot of backhanded compliments, which I think enrages some people. Uh, in this particular case, I found his framing of the issue a little distasteful, but ultimately, I didn't find his logic to be all that bad the argument about the rankings is just a bad one it's a non-starter but i think what he's trying to say with those rankings is correct uh 
Good question. Should fighters always be warned once about eye pokes, accidental or not, and then if it happens again, be penalized regardless? I think at a minimum, look, if a fighter pokes someone in the eye and loses a point, um, I won't cry about it. But I think at a minimum, if you poke someone in the eye, automatic warning. Automatic warning. If you poke someone in the eye, automatic warning. And if it's flagrant while you do it, take a point. I think it has to be a little bit of referee discretion about the nature of the um, the nature of the eye poke, how it happened, um, how bad it was, whether it was intentional, like really intentional, like mm, like like three stooges intentional, that sort of thing. But at a minimum, at a very bare minimum, um, you should be able to, to to warn them. And and you know everyone was bad at G- Gaspar Oliver on Saturday for taking a point for an unrelated like it two. It was uh, uh, the Makashvili fight where I think he had a knee to the head of a downed opponent and then an eye poke. And then Gaspar Oliver took a point. I don't mind doing that at all. Sorry. If you're generally reckless, a referee has a right to do something about it. Good. Glad he did. Luke Rockhold says it would be an honor to beat Anderson Silva up. If the best Anderson Silva ever was to fight Luke Rockhold at his best, which fighter would you pick to win and why? Probably Luke Rockhold because of his ground ability. Um, Khan versus Canelo. Yeah, I saw I saw a range of reaction on Twitter the other day. I saw um, some people saying this is BS. You know, Canelo needs to be fighting Golovkin. You know, what is he doing? Um, this is ridiculous. Others saying, you know what, it's a stupid fight, but I'm glad Khan got the big fight he can get. Sure, he didn't get Mayweather. Sure, he didn't get Pacquiao, but. If you can't get those, this is the next best thing. Canelo is probably the biggest star in boxing, so he's going to get his money fight that he wanted. Look, here's what I'll say. Um, you know, I remember before the Lamont Peterson fight, Khan being like, "Yeah, I'm kind of done with this division after this fight. I'm going to move it to 147, uh, regular welterweight." And of course, that didn't quite work out. And of course, he has bounced around weight classes a little bit himself. But you know, it's supposed to be like a, 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 a 155 fight, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he's going to be badly outsized here, but. I think the cynical view is that Khan's just taking a big money fight and it's going to get stretched within five rounds. And if it happens, I would hardly be surprised. I will say I am kind of curious to see how the speed and movement of Khan um, matches up with Canelo. I don't think I don't think Khan's really going to have the power to do a whole lot to Canelo, so I'm going to favor Canelo no matter what. But I am, a, if I'm being honest, I'm a little bit curious about it. It is an interesting. Style clash, and I think a lot of these. I, I I saw a lot of reaction on Twitter that was a little bit different. I was like, "There's no way Khan can do anything." Well, look, there's a lot of reasons to think he won't or can't be able to do anything. How many times do we need to be told our prejudices about fighters can routinely be wrong and upended in a moment's notice? All the time, all the time, all the time, we are wrong as prognosticators about what a guy is, what a lady is, and what they're going to do. So you're right if you have cynical inclinations. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But to be so adamant that you know exactly what this is, you know, you know exactly what Shamrock versus Gracie is. There's no mystery there. It's almost like who cares who wins? It doesn't mean anything. Khan versus Canelo is a little bit different. I agree it's unorthodox. I agree that if you have suspicions about it, they're not crazy. I don't agree. It's easily dismissible. And frankly, I'm kind of looking forward to it. And hey, maybe I might even go cover it for SB Nation. We'll see.
UFC contracts. All right, we've already gone over this one. Um, so I'm going to talk about this one, and this is the last thing we'll say about Sage because I'm t- uh, I'm sure you're tired of me talking about him too. Um, we'll mention this generally about excuses. Has your opinion changed about Sage Northcutt with the information on the MMA Hour that he was sick with strep? Seems like he had some pretty legit counters to the haters out there. I okay, this is my point. If Tim Sylvia came out and said he had strep in a loss, y'all would y'all would riot. Y'all would riot. The infantilization of Northcutt all of a sudden changes everything to say, oh well, his this is not an excuse. This is merely an explanation. No, that's your framing of it. This is a cold unequivocal excuse now whether you want to accept it or not it's fine and as you know in this chat i'm a little more forgiving of guys making excuses they're they're human bodies they're asking their human bodies to do athletic performance when athletic performance is hindered in some way that should be recognized and for him to say that i had strep probably did impact his performance to some extent it's just not clear that is why he lost there's not a clear one-to-one why he lost i mean once the choke was so deep fine but you know, that the choke was even, I mean, it's like Kurt Osiander. It's not that he tapped to the choke so much. It's a little bit that. It's that Kurt, people always ask Kurt Osiander, hey, Kurt, how do I get out of this triangle? And he'll put himself in a triangle and he'll look at the camera and be like, if you got here, you effed up a long time ago, a long time ago, and probably a number of times. Okay, neither here nor there. We've already been over that. But the question about this is, to what extent do explanations about athletic performance being hindered by illness or injury mitigate what we saw? This, I think, is the key to understanding Sage Northcutt. Anybody who tells you they know exactly what his future looks like is a liar, is a liar. Whether there are people who say he'll be champion in two years or people who say he'll be out of the UFC in two years. No one knows. The future is unwritten. He's in such an underdeveloped state that it could go one way, it could go the other way, and I frankly think it's more likely to go the successful route, if I'm being honest. I really think you can make no predictive value based on what you saw there. I think it's a kid who got wrapped up in a larger set of circumstances that got him in over his head, didn't know what to do with him, from the pressure to the sickness to the fight itself to the choke itself, and just kind of was overcome by it. But that is a correctable issue generally. That's fine. And, and everyone's issues will be different. If Tito Ortiz, for example, came out and said, well, I had strep throat that contributed to a loss, he might be right, but you might have fatigue about Tito Ortiz being like, oh, my God, here's Tito again, talking about his cracked skull, talking about his broken neck, talking about this and that and everything else. And, yeah, you have strep. You would do that because he's the boy who cried wolf a number of times. That's not the case with Northcutt. This is his first um, sort of run-in with this kind of thing. But this is my point. Like, you know, you lost on a big stage. Okay, fine. The last thing he should have been doing is talking about this. The very last thing. Because the future is so underdeveloped. And if your instinct is, you know what, this is kind of tough. I'm going to get out of this pretty quickly. And you're going to tap. And I'm not saying that's the situation. I'm just positing. I'm theorizing. And then your follow-up is to then say, well, you know what, guys? I tapped kind quickly because I was sick. You know, Joe Warren out there having food poisoning looking like death. And beat Patricio Freire. And everyone's like, well, GSP tapped to Matt Hughes um, and then came back and was champion, which, yes, the, uh, which to me is a very good example. He was also fighting Matt Hughes for what, the title? Okay. I mean, it's not the same level of rigor uh, being asked of him. You know, it's just, it's just not. 
So the, the, the examples are informative, but otherwise um, not, not direct parallels. You, it is okay to take into account that this guy was probably not feeling 100%. It is okay. That does not absolve him from poor performance. It doesn't. It doesn't. There are any number of things you can point to that it's not clear that fatigue generally contributed to. That he was so tired, he couldn't move his body. Looked to me like a lot of circumstances, he didn't... He didn't like the punishment that was being rained down on him and made some bad choices. That's a correctable issue. That is not a career-defining issue. That is not a character-defining issue, at least not for the for forever. But it is one presently that has, frankly, from what I can tell, and I could be wrong, a tangential relationship to whatever illness he was feeling. What could be the case was that this is a guy who has... Um, you know, he's so healthy that any any kind of impact on that maybe mentally messes with him a little bit because he's a young guy, which is understandable. I think that might be more the issue than he was actually tired. Last thing I'll say about this, and I won't talk any more sage on this chat. Um, I interviewed Matt Brown prior to his fight with Stephen Thompson, and I asked him what he thought about him. And I mentioned this in this chat before. And actually, it's one of the, it's one of the more insightful things I think any fighters ever told me, which was like, look, this guy was 65 or something, and O in kickboxing. His point was, I think, super well taken. He goes, you mean to tell me that every time he showed up to those fights, he was in a good mood, he wasn't sad, he didn't have anything on his mind, that he wasn't injured, that he wasn't sick? There's no way. There's no way in 65 fights you showed up every time feeling awesome, and he still managed. That is the kind of testament to to character that you want to see. And I'm not saying at all. That is beyond Sage's grasp, but it's a it's a beyond his grasp currently, because currently when he loses, the first thing he does is talk about how sick he felt. Understandable, but maybe that's the sort of thing where um, you know, you know, it's a little bit of a lack of accountability. All right. True, false, and I'm sure that the sensitive fans out there are going to go crazy about this anybody who tells you that sage can't be champion is just not accurate but anybody who tells you that he, the reason why he just couldn't couldn't handle brian barbarina is because he had strep maybe it didn't help no doubt about it but i can give you a bunch of other reasons that don't look a whole lot stress related from fatigue that tell you he lost i can point to some other ones pretty easily that don't that don't do that that's what he has to work on. True, false. Jones will finish Cormier. I'm going to say true. Jones versus Rumble will headline UFC 200. I'll just say true just because I want it to be true. Uh, Northcutt will not fight again at least until the summer. I hope that's true. That's exactly what he needs. Give that kid a long camp. Put him through the rigors. Let's 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 incrementally work on his mental toughness. Let's incrementally work on pushing him to his uh, exhaustion limits. You know, Because, again, even if you're not hurt, if you're just tired... If you're tired, you make poor choices. There's it, a famous expression: fatigue makes cowards of men. So let's you got to learn to get tired, and then you got to learn to make decisions while you're tired. And I think Faraz Zahabi and the guys at TriStar they're going to make a man out of him. You watch. Uh, Overeem signs with Bellator. I'll say false. Ben Henderson will be a two division champion on Bell in Bellator. I'll say true. 
Rothwell will not fight for the belt in 2016. It is unfortunate, but I think that's probably true. If Bisping beats Silva, he gets a title shot. Can they really do Bisping versus um, Rockhold again? I'll say false, but maybe not. I'm, I'm not too certain about that. Uh, Real Madrid will win La Liga and or Champions League. Not this year, man. Although, you know, Zidane's doing pretty good. Uh, Nick Diaz will fail a BS drug test again. I'm going to say false just to send out good vibes. Cruz versus Johnson super fight wouldn't sell more than 400000 on pay-per-view. Probably not, but 400000 is a good clip. Let's jump down to the bottom of this thing so I can skip a couple of these. Uh, boy, a lot of true false today. Uh, UFC 101 Silva versus Griffin. Do you think the fight was fixed? Well, that's the worst question in the world. True false, John Jones edition. John Jones is the best fighter in the world, not just pound for pound. In my opinion, it's true, but your mileage may vary. John Jones versus Anthony Johnson would be a closer matchup at heavyweight than a light heavyweight. False. John Jones will KO Anthony Johnson in 2016. False. Jones versus Cormier 2 will be more one-sided than the first fight. True. Jones will finish Cormier, as I said before. True. Uh, Okay, UFC taking down videos. Look, what's your take on UFC taking down videos that contain UFC footage? A lot of these videos are fan-made fight promos, which are arguably better than the official UFC ones. Others, like the BJJ Scout videos and Faraz Zahabi's Rousey Home Breakdown, are almost definitely fair use. Is the UFC sabotaging themselves, or is there more to this? I I actually think the story is, we we talked about the UFC being very protective over their content. We've talked about their their espousal of, uh, or espousing of, um, of Sopa and Pippa. We've talked about you know, they take down GIFs on site, even when it's clear, effective, fair use categorization. The The problem to me is we can revisit those. That's not the salient issue. To me, the salient issue is that the YouTube copyright system heavily favors content creators in a way that it makes a mockery of um, fair use. The other other platforms don't do that. Daily Motion doesn't do that. And to an extent, Vimeo doesn't do that either. Now, People aren't on Vimeo and Daily Motion to the same extent that YouTube is, but but um, are some of these videos clear fair use, um, or do some of these videos make clear use of the fair use fair use rule? In my judgment, of course, yes. But the way in which the copyright system is enforced in YouTube does not really make a whole lot of um, uh, way for for that kind of implementation. That's the problem. So if you don't want your videos taken down, put them on Daily Motion. I'm not advocating that you take someone else's footage. I'm advocating if you're using things for fair use and you believe in fair use, that's one thing. But if you're just taking footage to take footage, no. Like, you should have your video taken down. But if it falls under fair use, there are other platforms that are more accommodating of that. Let's see. Still no belt for Connor. The new trailer and changed poster for the McGregor versus Aldo Super Fight UFC 196 still doesn't show the featherweight champ. Where is the new poster? I have not seen the UFC 196 new poster. I saw the ad. The ad was uninspired, but uh, okay, no big deal. 
Uh, does Henderson to Bellator help the UFC? Does this help the UFC's case in the Monopoly lawsuit? Uh, Paul Gift at, at Anime Analytics on Twitter has explained it has almost nothing, if not outright nothing, to do with the fighter lawsuit. The fighter lawsuit defines a, a frame of time, and everything that happens in that frame of time is what's being um, contested, discussed, digested, and is used for all the relevant parties um, in the lawsuit. This thing with Henderson happening is happening uh, outside of that spectrum. So no, it has no relevance to that. Or virtually no relevance. Uh, Dana on Bellator, on Benson to Bellator. Quote: We made him an offer that he that would have paid him substantially more had he become champion than he's getting now. If he would have become world champion again, but he chose their deal, which offered more upfront. So essentially, taking the one in the hand and the other in the bush. One is a smart and obvious choice for Bendo. Yes. Two, had he stayed, how likely do you think it would be that he could have become a champ again or be that he would have, the UFC ever would have given him a title shot? Unlikely on both, but mostly for that second reason. How big is this for the credibility of Bellator as a promotion? Again, I think it's big in the sense that it's an essential step in the process, but it's merely that. It's, it's a step in the process. Um, that, that, that should be acknowledged. Uh, guillotine anaconda parallels. Luke, you previously mentioned the current renaissance of the guillotine choke. As you've demonstrated, the guillotine choke found less success for time, but then appeared again after innovations, blah, 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 blah. I wonder whether the same can be said for the anaconda choke. There was a time when Noguera was catching all and sundry with this technique, and it seemed to be a staple submission MMA landscape. In recent years, however, there have been few attempted and fewer successfully caught at the elite level. But in the last few months, I've noticed a few more anaconda chokes being attempted and caught. Ortega uh, and Luque come to mind. And I wonder if there has been some technical innovations made there also. I would very much appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. It's a great question. Um, we saw it in the Brown versus Dwyer fight um, that, uh, and I mentioned this in the Monday Morning Analyst, but he he locked up that, uh, that uh, I think he even tried a gator roll. No, who tried the gator roll last week and it bailed? Maybe it wasn't him. In any case, he locked it up. And then it, it wasn't really a choke because it didn't, it, it wasn't just, it didn't have the right kind of, um, compression that I needed to, but it was like a front headlock was like a power front headlock. So you are seeing some things like that where it that's not making it more effective necessarily as a submission device, but it is making the hold more ubiquitous and it's widening its application in different circumstances. But it's an interesting question you ask. It's one I'll have to think about for a minute, but um, it it's it's fascinating. It's I hadn't I hadn't I hadn't considered it, but you might be right. All right, so let's uh, let's get to some of these questions. Someone says, "I am watching you from Bucharest, Romania." It's uh, what nine p.m. there. Can you say hello to your European uh, listeners? What's up, everyone in Bucharest, Romania, and or Europe? Love y'all. Sage, CM Punk, and the two guys fighting for the right to fight Punk—all UFC guys—but Askren needs more experience. You guys know that. Ben Askren does not need more experience. I mean, you can have what you, your whatever thoughts you want about how mean he is, um, but I mean, we all know that that was a ridiculous argument that never made any sense. The pay-per-view model itself is to blame for fighter pay woes. Gives the company direct metrics to evaluate worth. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, it also is the only model that can give them, or you know, at the current rate, 
is the only one that can give them um, the most amount of money. That's where the predominant amount of money comes from since the fighters don't make any money off the Fox deal directly, right? They don't get a share of that TV revenue like the NBA players get a share of the TV revenue from the NBA's various television deals. Um, but it, it, it raises an interesting point that you're bringing up. Namely, a lot of people say... Um, you know, well, you don't bring in, you don't bring in money at the gate. You don't sell on pay per view. You're therefore worthless. And it is true that number one, looking at pay per view buy rates and looking at gate receipts is a very clear and direct way to evaluate um, fighters at the high end about what they can bring in. And number two, there's just larger amounts of money by which you can you can directly tie someone. So it's a very uh, I won't say simple, but it is a very straightforward way of measuring worth. The problem is that it's not the only way of measuring worth. Everyone who's like, well, these guys who fight on the prelim card, they don't mean anything to anyone. This is so ridiculous. Number one, if they all went away, what would happen to the product? It would be badly damaged for any number of reasons, not least of which is that it would lower amount of broadcast time. It would uh, enable uh, competitors. Um, it would um, you know, make the process by which you have any kind of funnel system to the top difficult to maintain. These guys have a ton of value to uh, the promotion. Moreover, if they're on Fox Sports 1 or Fox, Fox sells ads against these people. If they're on Fight Pass, the fight they're being put on there, yes, not because of the best fighters in the world, but the UFC is trying to sell subscriptions. They have value there in bulk. Maybe not individually one-on-one, but in bulk, those that category of fighters has a tremendous amount of value to the Ultimate Fighting Championship and to the fans generally. That that's the idea. Like, well, they don't sell at the gate. No one's showing up to see you know, Alex um, Casares. Um, this is re- this is a f- absurd argument. This is totally false on its face. There's not one bit of merit to it. The way in which we define value needs to be rejiggered in MMA because the current way we do it is so limiting and applies to like five fighters that it excludes everyone else. When in fact, sorry, I got itchy hair on my nose when in fact they have a tremendous amount of value but it's delivered in ways that aren't you know automatically reflected in the easiest to understand metrics what is the significance of winning a belt in two weight classes four have done it we have about two to uh, attempt it well in the ufc no one's really done that that's why but you asked me about uh, eric del fiero i don't have enough i need to talk to him first Yeah, again, what's the best way for young journalists and MMA writers to get their work noticed? Make work that's worth noticing. I get so many guys who 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 email me and direct message me, and I am sure you are all wonderful people. Do not misunderstand me, and I appreciate everyone who tries to reach out. And then they ask me to read their sites, and sometimes I do. And I have to tell you, much of what I read is woefully bad. I am not saying this to be cruel. I am not saying this to be uh, elitist. I'm. I, you have to understand me. I want you all to do excellent work. The vast majority of it, a guy's repackaging opinion, and it's really typically uninformed opinion and mediocre writing. So here's what I would say to you. That's what I've said to everyone else. Get out there and make calls, break news. If you've got opinion, make sure it is sharp as night as a knife. Make sure you're just out there doing things that make us want to turn our head and look. And simply writing predictions or having some kind of take about things after the fact is just so utterly irrelevant. And the other fact of the matter is, um, even if you have good opinion, you have to find a way to get it noticed. And that's no easy task. I don't present this to you to 
um, tell you that there are easy steps to remedy this problem. But this, you, you need to understand how to develop an audience, how to, how to, how to um, use various platforms for doing that, be it social media like Facebook, be it Tumblr, be it WordPress, whatever the case may be. There's a lot that goes into this that folks simply think they take. Any, everyone thinks like any other job in the world where people think it's easy. They think they can just show up and do it. It's really not, not like that at all. Um, you have to learn how to communicate an idea. You have to have interesting ideas. You have to have interesting things to say, be it you have breaking news or your own things to say. And you have to know how to disseminate that to a wider audience. So the best thing I can tell you is m make a scene. <laughs> Can this Henderson move and others who might follow have a positive impact on fighter pay in the UFC? People were asking me about this. They were saying, well, look, if you only make, let's say, 10K off the Reebok deal, and I'm just making up some figures, let's say 50 and 50, right? <clears throat> if Bellator wants to match that, how do they do that? Well, what they'll do is Bellator will offer you, again, a package deal of things. You remember from the Alvarez case, it was, we'll put you on this show, and we'll give you this amount of money for this, and that amount of money for that. And what the UFC has to wind up doing is, I think, generally raising... They can, be, they can do other things like matching you with certain shows, but one thing that I think they've been doing is they've been raising the overall rate of pay to match what they might lose in fighter pay, or excuse me, sponsor pay. So in a sense, it's already having this slight increase in, uh, I shouldn't say slight, it's having an, a somewhat of an increase in fighter purses as a way to compensate for that. Now, this, this is not happening wholesale. This is not happening to everyone across the board. I think this is happening a little bit more in pockets or individual cases, but that's how that's remedied. You can offer a monetary value to match their perceived or accounted for monetary value, um, depending on what the package of goods is, all the way from um, sponsor pay to show and win money to uh, what, would the, what would it be worth someone to be on this reality show, whatever the case may be. Was Ryan Bader the biggest winner of the Sage debacle? I don't know. I wouldn't call it a debacle, but uh, Bader put in a poor performance, but it was overshadowed. Yeah, a little bit. He kind of benefited from it. Um, yeah, poor Ryan Bader. You know, that just didn't go. No, it just didn't go well for him. That was just a really poor showing. It was a and it was a regression too. You know, um, the story about Ryan Bader heading into that fight was the continued improvement was, you know, we don't know how far he had gotten, but he was better than he was before, not in a general way, but in clear specific ways. And then in this fight, it was like this massive regression to what he already was previously. It was, it was very disappointing, unfortunately. Um, is there any chance fans and media can go one week without discussing UFC 200 ad nauseum? Probably not. Is there any current Bellator fighter you would pick to beat Ben Henderson? And thinking about their welterweight division, which is where the likeliest chance comes from. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. Some fun fights there, I can tell you that. Uh, the Douglas Lima fight would be fun. Chris Honeycutt would be fun. If they kept it standing, the MVP fight would be fun. I don't know if we keep it standing, but in that capacity, it would be fun. Um, the Koreshkov fight should be good, too. You know, although he'll probably get taken down and crushed, but for a while it might be fun.
why don't we see more unique submissions like Rothwell's go-go choke in the UFC? Why are rear naked chokes so prevalent? Yeah, I was actually having a discussion last night um, at, at class about this very thing. Um, my theory about this, and I have not... Let me be clear about this. It's just a theory. I'm not stating it as fact. I'm just being... It's just an idea I have. My theory about jiu-jitsu and MMA is as follows. You will occasionally see technique that you only see uh, high-level black belts do or high-level brown and black belts do. Um, we haven't seen it yet, and certainly everyone down to white belt does bear and bolo. But what I'm talking about is as follows. The technical sophistication in terms of the kind of manipulative jiu-jitsu you have to do is really only blue or purple belt, even in the UFC. What is the difference is that the application of that jiu-jitsu is black belt level. So, for example, you don't see a lot of go-go chokes, largely because that's a kept secret. But think of um, think of Jacques Array's head and arm triangle on Chris Camozzi. Now, he did something interesting there with the pass where he, he walked along the cage, so that's a little bit different. But just the application of that submission itself, that's not an esoteric submission. You guys know all that. Um, but I bet you his squeeze and body positioning is so perfect. It's, it must it must be devastating. It must be devastating in a way that it's hard to imagine. Like, And again, think about the mount. People learn the mount maybe their first week in jiu-jitsu, but the way in which Demi and Maya can control from the mount, the way in which he can set up triangles from the mount like he did, I think, on Chael Sonnen, if I'm not mistaken. You know, those kinds of things... That's a black belt application of a more basic technique, right? Um, and there's nothing basic about learning to control mount. As I mentioned before, I think it's a lost art. I'm just trying to point out there's not all these super sophisticated, and a lot of the more sophisticated stuff comes in the gi game anyway, reverse de la worm guard and stuff like that. You don't see a lot of that. You just see arm bars. You see, you see rear naked chokes. You see kimuras. But those guys are applying those kimuras. Go back and look at Husamar Paharis' kimura on Jake Shields. Whatever else you want to say about Husamar Paharis, that, that Kimura was textbook. Textbook. Every point of control he had, everything he needed to do to make sure it worked, it was done. It was just sublime. It was sublime in that way. And so that's the kind of thing I think you see in MMA. And heel hooks, you know, are certainly um, a growing part of the game. But those are still sloppily applied for the most part. Most people doing heel hooks do them poorly, I think, in MMA. And again, for very good reasons. One, they're hard to do. Two, it's hard to control somebody. Three, donks are getting punched in the face while it happens. There's a lot of incentives to not do that kind of thing right. But um, but that's my point. You're not seeing the most sophisticated techniques in the world. You're seeing moderately sophisticated techniques applied in a super high-level black belt way. People keep asking me about the ultimate fighter. I, I care about the ultimate fighter in the same way I care about like, you know, traffic that day or something. I don't go to bed thinking about it or wake up. It's not a part that consumes my day. If I have to deal with it that day, I deal with it that day. And then I forget about it. It's not, you know, um, Fox sports might still have use for it and USC might still have use for it. And that's great. Awesome. I hope they succeed, but I, it's, it's just not a part of my life. Uh, who is my favorite author? Um, who's the best last book I read? Oh, I read a book by Radley Belko, The Rise of the Warrior Cop. It's a good book. Um, 
Have you watched Looking for a Fight? Do you enjoy it? I watched episode two today. Uh, look, I don't really care about um, Dana Wyatt and Matt Sarah and Nick the Tooth hanging out. That is could not be less interesting to me. But them going to local shows, I think, is kind of fun. And seeing what guys can produce there is kind of fun. Interestingly, as a bit of a spoiler, on the second episode, and I don't care that I'm spoiling it, um, they don't they don't sign anybody because the guy who they went to go look at um, drops the ball a little bit. So that's kind of interesting. That's, you know, I can't make these guys win or lose. So that's part of the, the interesting part about the show. But I wish the one thing about the tap out show was that they kind of made it much more about the fighter, uh, the tap out show on versus they would, they would bring the guy into the van. They would have these talks with him and then they would go and follow him and win or lose and blah, blah, blah. This one, it seems much more not about that. It seems much more about, um, the three hosts but maybe that's what people like i don't know but i don't i mean going to eat and sledding them with dogs it's like i'm not your audience for that like I, I can assure you oh good question could the california state weight cutting rules lead to ufc avoiding california i wondered the same thing myself um, I don't think it would affect them in the sense that they could still put a heavyweight fight on there, right? That The weight cutting really probably would have very little effect there, if any. So they're not precluded in that sense, but that still would create and raise some other issues about it. Now, um, as I understand it, some of these measures that the California Athletic Commission passed, the Jersey's been doing for a while, the hydration test that they talked about. Um, they've stopped guys from fighting who haven't been able to make weight. The way in which the medical inspection is done, that the recent regulations call for in California, Jersey's been doing some of that for a while. The only part, and I, and I here's what I say about these California rules. I think generally it seems pretty sensible for the most part. The only part that I don't understand is um, how you're going to ban dehydration. Period. I don't know how you're going to do that. You're going to ban extraordinary dehydration, but you can't ban dehydration. Oh, and by the way. Uh, you're not allowed to use an IV in Jersey unless you get a therapeutic use exemption. So that's kind of interesting too, how they, how they go through that. Now, why would you need that? I don't know, but whatever the case may be. Um, so it's not like this is the only state doing it and it's not like all the rules make sense, but I generally applaud it and I'm looking to see what happens with it. And it wouldn't affect the UFC doing a title bout if those guys don't want to change weights, but It'll be curious to see how it affects everything else, how, how much guys cut weight less. We'll see how that goes. All right, so I've overextended my time. I have to go. I want to thank everyone for watching. I want to remind you, please give it a like. Please share it. I really appreciate that. Whatever channel of social media you're on, um, we'll have lots of coverage coming tonight, tomorrow, and Friday, and Saturday for UFC and Fight Night 82. The crew is there in uh, Las Vegas, wherever the fight is, Las Vegas. And uh, we'll have coverage. So stick around. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, until next time, stay frosty.